Well, there may be more people wanting to come in a little later, but let's go ahead and get ourselves started. And I would like to set our tone by singing again. If we're going to talk about music and worship, we ought to sing some. In your handout, the backside of the second sheet, if I have it all figured out correctly, should be Jesus the very thought of thee. Which is number 241 from the hymnal. When was this written? The music in 1866. The text by Bernard of Clairvaux written when? In the 12th century. That's a long time ago. Is that as far back as our hymnal goes? Who knows? We have a hymn in our hymnal from the second century, a hundred years after the death of John the Revelator, and some from almost every century between then and now. We don't realize what kind of a treasure house this hymnal is. And it's probably not the best one in the world, but it serves our purpose as well. So let's sing something that comes from a thousand years ago. From a larger poem by Bernard of Clairvaux, this particular portion of it has been translated several times by different people. A portion of the same poem is also, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which most of us at least are acquainted with, know what it is. I'd like us to sing all five stanzas together. in heaven, we are thankful that you have allowed us to know about Jesus and the great plan of salvation. 
But we thank you even more that you have gone beyond and allowed us to know Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, and our brother. We want to know how to sing his praise and your praise more effectively. And so we ask for your wisdom and your grace to teach us and your Holy Spirit to guide our thinking as we spend an hour together in Jesus' name. I was asked to make two announcements, which I will do before we get further on with things. One is just to remind everyone that there is a consecration service at 445 after the second seminar this afternoon. It apparently was not announced this morning, and those who are organizing wanted to be sure it's fresh in people's minds. There is one last meeting then at 445. I've been asked also to say that all of the seminars will be available from audioverse.org online, including this one. I do know this thing works because I did a similar presentation in Minneapolis, and sure enough, on the website, there I am, loud as ever or whatever. Well, I didn't know I would have certain people in my crowd, or I wouldn't be able to start by just asking the question, but I'll ask it anyway, because I know two people are going to knock this one off real fast. How long would it take you to figure out what the following names have in common? Nadab, Baasha, Ela, Zimri, Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Jehu, Jehoiahaz, Jehoash, Jeroboam II, Zechariah, Menahem, Pekahiah, and Pekah. They are. I stumble over them occasionally. These are 16 of the 19 kings who ruled Israel, that is to say the northern kingdom, from the time of the dividing of the kingdom until it was taken into Assyrian captivity, as near as I can tell. And of every single one of these 16 people, Scripture records this. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. There are three other names that should be on the list. Two others, Shalom and Hosea. And, of course, I left off the first one, who was Jeroboam I. Of the other two, Shalom and Hosea, there are negative things said, but not quite so strongly. Of these 16, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. I have to wonder, what in the world could Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, have done that would make him the lodestone of evil for 175 years. I was going to try to remember, and I forgot, to look up who the President of the United States was 175 years ago. Some of you that are history majors might be able to come up with that. I can't write off. But whatever it was, I don't recall anybody saying that Clinton and Bush and Reagan and so on have all done the same sort of thing he did 175 years ago. And yet here is this story repeated over and over about every single king of Israel. He did make calves of gold, Jeroboam did, which was the wrong thing to do. He took it on himself to offer sacrifices, which he was forbidden to do. He declared feasts which the Lord had not declared, all of which is true. But I'm interested in 1 Kings 13:33 to 34, which reads... After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people priests of the high places, 
whosoever would, he consecrated him, and he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing became sin unto the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from the face of the earth. He openly and deliberately disregarded God's distinction between sacred and secular, choosing those who were profane, which is another word for common, which is another word for ordinary or secular, choosing those who were profane to fill a sacred office. I have to believe, if I had no other basis than that, that God makes a distinction between sacred and secular. I'm going to be quoting a little later on from a significant document from the 20th century. But I would like to give you just one sentence from it at the moment. Religion consists of those actions, purposes, and experiences which are humanly significant. Nothing human is alien to the religious. The distinction between sacred and secular can no longer be maintained. I've heard that in circles other than the one whence this document. But I suggest that if we read Exodus 28 to 11, that notion cannot possibly stand. Six days, we are told, are for the doing of our secular activities. That's what the six days are for, providing for the necessities, dealing with the contingencies of this earthly life. One day is to be remembered as different, preserved for sacred purposes. The day itself is called holy. That's a designation that I don't have the authority to bestow, neither do you. God is the one who makes something holy. And the commandment says, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Now, I don't know about you, but I would have kind of expected that the other one would say, but the seventh day you shall come and do God's work. But that's not what it says. It says the seventh day we are supposed to come and enter into God's rest, not his work. That entreats, we will deal with that a little later on also. Not only did God rest on the Sabbath day, he blessed it, he hallowed it. If something as immaterial as time can be divided into holy and profane segments, surely the understanding of sacred and secular as separate categories makes sense and is still valid. Now, I'm going to try real hard to stretch your imaginations. For the sake of this five minutes of argument, and not beyond that, will you try to pretend with me for just this argument, that rock and roll represents the highest cultural form that mankind has yet devised? I hope that stretches you. That there is nothing offensive about its subject matter, its associations, or its manifestations. I still suggest that rock is what the world listens to six days a week, seven days a week for that matter. It is what people do their work to. It is the common language, the profane language, and I use that in the most polite sense of the word. It is the ordinary language of the culture of our world. It has encircled the planet. No matter what you listen to, you will hear evidences of good old American pop rock in almost every piece of music that comes. Listen to the world from American Public Radio. Their last 10 minutes is always a piece of music from somewhere in the world. You listen to it, it's got a little American pop rock somewhere in the background, if it isn't dominating. No matter what corner of the earth, the world's youth culture has adopted American pop rock as the language. 
Rock is as close as we have come to a global musical language. It is the way people express themselves. It's the way they entertain themselves. It's the way they do their work. If there were no other reason at all to challenge the appropriateness of using rock in worship, the Sabbath commandment would have to require a change of style during those hours that are sacred hours and different from. The day is not just another profane day, and we ought not treat it in that fashion. On your bibliography, you'll find a book by Dan Lucarini, a rather nice narrative of his own journey through the rock scene and the CCM praise and worship scene, Confessions of a Former Praise and Worship Leader. Along the way, as he describes his experience, he quotes Rick Warren, a name that probably more of you know. Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Church, and this is what Rick Warren said. We use the style of music the majority of people in our church listen to on the radio. They like bright, happy, cheerful music with a strong beat. Their ears are accustomed to music with a strong bass line and rhythm. And again, a quote from the same writer, the music used on Sunday in church should not be any different from the music people listen to on their car radios during the week. If we accept that argument, we make music the one realm of human experience which does not need to bow to the sacredness, the sanctity of Sabbath time. I don't think we want to go there. It makes no sense. And in the book of Ezekiel, the Lord spells out very clearly how he sees that. Ezekiel twenty-two twenty-six: Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. And they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, treating them the same as weekdays. And I am profaned. God says, I am made common. I am made ordinary. I am made cheap among them. To undertake to worship the holy God on his holy day by using the most secular which equals common, which equals profane manifestations of our contemporary culture, is not just an oxymoron, folks. It is unscriptural. It is indefensible. It's wrong. I'd like to talk about church and culture. One can identify that there is a distinction and an intersection between the two from Jesus' words in the John 17 prayer. I do not pray that thou shouldst take them out of the world but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. Now, I don't think all culture is evil, and I would like to explain how I use the word culture, what I think of. I'm borrowing a description from Marva Dawn, a very fine writer on worship. Two of her books are on the list there. I recommend them both very, very highly. She says, quote, Culture connotes every aspect of life that is produced by human beings, as opposed to that which is given in creation. Culture is what the human does. I submit a rose is not a part of culture. The layout of a rose garden is. A scenic vista is not a part of culture. But Albert Bierstadt's great canvas among the Sierra Nevada mountains of California, his painting of the vista, that's human culture. The fact that I have two folds of tissue which can be made to vibrate by moving breath between them. That's not culture. That's what God created. What I choose to sing or say is culture. 
Roger Scruton goes on and expands the notion of culture into three kinds. He says there's common culture, high culture, and popular culture. Common culture has to do with those behaviors and beliefs which define the group I belong to. In terms of Adventist culture, those of us who have grown up Adventist or have accepted its teachings, we have a particular understanding of foot washing, which is not common in the Protestant world, in the Christian world in general. People don't do foot washing. I remember being in a church choir, not an Adventist church, in which there were uh, eight or ten or a dozen of us Adventists helping to fill in, and the good preacher rather made light of the notion of people washing people's feet. He thought that was pretty silly. I don't know how many of us behind him he thought he was stepping on. But foot washing is an element in Adventist culture, common culture. That's part of what makes us who we are. High culture includes primarily the arts and involves the notion of a cultivated mind, a cultivated taste. A cultured person in this sense is not one who only recognizes, but who understands and appreciates the genius of a painter, such as Caravaggio, or the genius of the composer Brahms, or the genius of the poet Gerard Manley Hopkins. It doesn't matter whether I'm an Adventist or not. That has nothing to do with it. That's not the common culture notion. This is high culture. And it is generally thought to be somewhat elitist. And there are a lot of people who don't like elitist thinking. And so they say, hey, ordinary culture is as good as that is. Popular culture works just as well. Let's elevate popular culture to be just as fine, in our opinion, as, quote, high culture. So in that point of view, the graffiti on the public washroom wall is just as genuinely cultural as is the Statue of Liberty. Okay. The banjo picking of the bluegrasser has equal status with the cello artistry of Yo-Yo Ma. Mm. But at least we know what his distinctions are. Popular culture, high culture, common culture. Wade Clark Roof goes a little farther. He says, culture has to do with making sense out of life and formulating strategies for action and the ideas and symbols people draw on in these fundamental undertakings, are implicitly saturated with religious meaning. Religion itself, he says, is a set of cultural symbols. I think religion is more than a set of cultural symbols, but it certainly includes them. The link between religion and culture is easier for us to think of, perhaps, if we think about communities that are formed of like-minded believers. If you insisted on wearing only clothes that are fastened, held together by hooks and eyes... In our general culture, you would be thought a little peculiar. If you lived in an Amish village, that's the only kind there is. That goes with. That's just a normal part of how you belong there. That belongs. Horse-drawn buggies, prayer caps, all part of the Amish culture, and as long as you're in an Amish community, nobody thinks anything about them. Those of us from the outside smile, perhaps, or take note of what's going on. But it's much easier to defend that kind of common culture when you are in a community where everybody's doing it. And it is indeed part of how we deal with life. Furthermore, any social set has a greater significance than we sometimes think. Scruton builds his discussion of culture as a phenomenon on the understanding that religion really was the core of common culture originally. And I would recommend you read his book because I don't want to go farther on that one at this point. But he makes some very, very interesting points. What makes up the culture of Adventism? I'm not going to try to comprehend everything, and I've already mentioned foot washing, 
But if I'm going to talk about the culture of Adventism, I'm going to have to talk about the sacredness of the Seventh-day Sabbath, at least lip service to it. Baptism by immersion, which, of course, we share with the Baptists. Our peculiar observance of the Lord's Supper, not just foot washing, but the fact that we insist on non-alcoholic grape juice and non-salted wafers. And the fact that it comes every three months. That's part of Adventist common culture. The idea that our religious belief should shape our health and lifestyle behaviors is, if not entirely unique, certainly not practiced widely by other belief systems. Our presumed place as last-day Christians, since we don't like to use the word remnant anymore. And our teaching of the soul sleep in death, which is perhaps as distinctive as anything we have. These are aspects of Adventist culture. What then makes up the culture of 21st century America? What kind of a culture do we live in? If the Lord is concerned that we be in the world but not of the world, what is this world that he is concerned about in 21st century America? Well, America has obviously imported lots and lots of cultural things from many parts of the world. But I'm going to suggest that certain technologies are particularly obvious, and I think the most obvious one is television. Television is one of the major influences in American culture, in worldwide culture anymore. I was interested to learn that at the turn of the century, which is now eight years ago, at the turn of the century, over 98% of United States homes had a television. When you stop and think of the number, the percentage of homes that are ghetto homes or substandard housing homes, the fact that 98% of American homes have a television is of interest. The average actually is 2.2 sets per household. That means there are 11 television sets in every five homes across America. And if you walk into Sam's or Best Buy, you are assured that that's not going to go away soon. Big racks of them. All playing the same thing, fortunately. Graduating high school seniors have spent, on average, 80% of their discretionary time in front of the tube. Although I can't help wondering the last seven years whether some of that may have been diverted to video games. In 1987, William Four wrote the television even then was beginning, quote, beginning to usurp a role which until recently has been the role of the church in our society, namely to shape our system of values, to embody our faith, to express our cultural essence. That's scary. When each individual watches an average of over four hours a day of television, even the faithful who come for three full hours on Sabbath morning to the Lord's house are on average getting nine times as much indoctrination from the secular world. Now, not even talking for the moment about stewardship of our time, what are the values which our system is embedding in us? I stay away from the thing as much as I can, but sometimes when I'm stuck having to get my oil changed in the car, I'm sitting in a waiting room where there's no way to get away from the television. And the thing that I notice first is the incivility and the crudeness. It's just plain boorish behavior for most parts. The interviews with people, even the giving of the news, is not done with style, with fashion, with class. It's done rudely. In most cases, I'm offended by the attitudes of the talk show, talk show gurus as well. And then, of course, they're the coarser sitcoms. 
Another thing television does to us that we haven't realized yet is that it cripples our imagination. Ellen White said we should encourage children to use their imaginations in picturing the beauties of heaven. Any of you here ever read the Laura Ingalls Wilder books? Little House on the... Okay, I thought so. Okay. And you have your own picture in your mind of what the parlor looked like and what the wallpaper was like when that brush flew out of Laura's hand and... Remember? Oh, yeah? Okay. And she was in big trouble. Yeah. But if you watch it on television, your imagination doesn't have to worry about that anymore. You've seen it. Which is one of the biggest drawbacks, in my humble opinion, with the movie which came out not too long ago about the Passion of the Christ. I don't know what the crucifixion looked like. I have my own pictures. But once you've seen it on the screen, you know. That's the end of that. Who needs imagination anymore? Television cripples and destroys imagination. Film's the same. What sort of thing is on television? Well, violence always makes good screenplay. Always. There's always something going on violent. We've pretty well left behind the one-on-one shoot em out It's more fun if we just destroy galaxies all at once. Greed also plays pretty well. Falsity plays pretty well, or at least inaccuracy in advertising. Neil Postman points out that the earliest advertisements published in newspapers told you how good the goods you wanted to buy were. You don't find out anything about the quality of the goods on television advertising. All you find out is what kind of people buy. And you'd like to be one of those people, too. And whether the goods are worth it or not is totally irrelevant to the advertising industry. Religion, as a matter of fact, doesn't play very well on television, in case you hadn't noticed. The fact that it doesn't play there at all simply leads us to believe that religion, obviously, is marginal. doesn't matter to real life, does it? Sideshow. When a clergyman does appear on television, is his role that of a hero or a buffoon? You tell me. But beyond that even, a great deal of television is built on the cult of personality. Television lets you see Jay Leno or anybody else you want to name right up close, far closer than anybody is ever likely to really get to see him. We become enamored of his face. We learn to recognize his style. We think of him as a star, a celebrity. So what's all that got to do with the church? Well, I think a couple of things. We mentioned briefly this morning, what you bring to worship is what you have become in the six days between. If you have become less civil, more boorish, more greedy, more thing-oriented, less imaginative, more callous to violence and indecency, less respectful of the pastor who leads your church, is that going to affect your sensitivity to God? your gratitude to God, your awareness of your own poverty of soul, your own need of a Savior? I think it's fair to include here an additional deeper reading of something Ellen White wrote in the July 4, 1899 Review and Herald. She says, Divine help is provided for men and women. They have the opportunity of cooperating with the heavenly intelligences, of being laborers together with God. There is placed before them the possibility of gaining a fitness for the presence of God. 
Now, obviously, the principal application is when we're going to see God face to face beyond the second coming, being in his literal presence. But do we not speak every week of coming into the presence of God in his house? We say we are going to come into his presence. Are we fit to be in his presence? How do we gain a fitness? Ellen White says there is help provided, but it's not provided on the big screen. The cultivation of our character all week long has to do with our fitness for being in his presence on Sabbath morning. The second thing I think is related to, and here I've got a few toes that probably will feel stepped on, and I'm sorry. Cultic identification with the face on the screen is not spiritually healthy. Marvadon says the church is the last place where anyone ought to be famous. And on pondering through it, I agree with her very strongly. The church is the last place where anyone ought to be famous. The church is not a personality cult. The church is a fellowship of lost sinners who have been plucked, as it were, from the burning and given a new hope in Jesus Christ and him alone. I am not here to attack Breath of Life, Quiet Hour, or any of the other satellite series. Don't get me wrong. I am not saying the screen has never been, cannot be, or will not ever be used to do good. I am saying, however, that the medium builds on that kind of stardom. The television medium is built around that kind of personality cult. It is not built on good conceptual discourse, which is what the preaching of doctrine is. A man like my friend John Nixon, who stands at the pulpit and preaches the word, isn't really very good television fare. It's not the kind of thing that sells. And there's a little spin-off from that star mentality. In earlier centuries, the pastor, when he spoke on Sunday morning, spoke in front of the whole council of elders on the platform behind him. He was backed up by the community and its leaders. He was not up front as a solo performer. It was as though he were their spokesman and they were his support. The leadership was a joint leadership. And since everybody couldn't speak at once, he was the one who spoke for them. I find it very common anymore when someone is ready to preach the sermon that everybody on the platform takes a vamoose and gets out of the way. And I don't think it's healthy. We don't need one man up there and one man's opinion. We need to know what the Word of God says, and we need to know that the community is supporting what he says. And if for no other reason, I'm glad at least the choir has to stay up front in Collegedale, because it looks like there's somebody back there behind what he has to say. And I can't help wondering also whether the big screens in our churches don't cater to the personality cult. As Marvadon says, nobody has ever yet shown me a beautiful screen. If we are trying to beautify our churches, screens aren't it. Number three, those who mastermind what you see on your weekday television screen have at the very best only this much interest in elevating your soul. That's not where they're going. They are, as a matter of fact, much more likely agents of the real 21st century religion. Do you know what that is? Founded in the 1930s, there, was an organ, there is an organization known as the American Humanist Association. 
They published as one of their first statements a document now known as Humanist Manifesto One. In its third paragraph appear these words, and I quote, While this age does, does owe a vast debt to the traditional religions, it is nonetheless obvious that any religion that can hope to be a synthesizing and dynamic force for today must be shaped to the needs of this age. To establish such a religion is a major necessity of the present. It is a responsibility which rests upon this generation. We therefore affirm. Now, would you read from that that they are undertaking to establish a religion suitable to the needs of the 20th century? It reads that way. We therefore affirm the following. First, religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Bingo. There goes an awful lot of theology. There goes theology, period. There goes God, period. Out of the picture, gone, finished, done, through, over. There are 15 of these affirmations. And as an aside, the seventh section is the one which says the distinction between sacred and secular can no longer be maintained. Why should it? The first fundamental affirmation disposes of God. God is the only being who has the right to make anything sacred. How are you going to have sacred and secular anymore? It's gone. Perfectly logical. I'm interested also in the ninth section of Manifesto 2, which came out 40 years later, 1973. These, by the way, are available on the Internet if you want to look them up. The separation of church and state and the separation of ideology and state are imperatives. The state should encourage maximum freedom for different moral, political, religious, and social values in society. It should not favor any particular religious bodies through the use of public monies, nor espouse a single ideology and function thereby as an instrument of propaganda or oppression, particularly against dissenters. I agree with that. Sounds good. I'm for it. And then I remember that the first proposition in Manifesto 1 is that the universe is self-existing and not created, and it strikes me that every public school board across the nation, supported by your tax dollars and my tax dollars, is preaching that. The state, obviously, should be isolated from all religious beliefs, except theirs. Interesting. Humanism, in short, believes that humanity is all there is, at least on this planet, that humanity has within itself the power to achieve the realization of the world of his dreams, and the quest for the good life is the central task for mankind. If television producers don't believe the same, they certainly produce works that fit. No wonder the artistic, creative, cultural art forms presented and promoted on television focus on the present life and its pleasures. And ladies and gentlemen, rock music is one of those cultural art forms. It focuses on the present only. This, I think, is the time to introduce one of Marva Dawn's fine insights, and I quote, Let us face the question squarely. If television is causing people to be dissatisfied with the worship of our churches, should we change worship to be more like television? Or should the splendor of our worship cause people to ask better questions about television? That, of course, requires an intense look at worship. And I have to ask, do we take that word splendor with us? What kind of splendor did you experience in church this morning or last week? 
Did you go looking for splendor? The splendor of God? The splendor of the infinite God? All right, let's talk about popular culture. In a society where several fundamental tenets of humanism are taught in every public school, and they form the inescapable foundation to everything that is meant by the television culture. The universe is self-existing and not created. Man has emerged from nature as a result of a continuous process. Religion must formulate its hopes and plans in light of the scientific spirit. There will be no uniquely religious emotions and attitudes of the kind hitherto associated with belief in the supernatural. These are all quotations from the Humanist Manifesto. By definition, popular culture is intended to reach the populace, the people, the common people, the ordinary people. It seeks to provide the ideas and symbols that people draw on in making sense out of life for the commoner. Since the goal is to reach everybody, the ideas and the symbols, the means of reaching everybody, must be accessible to everybody. Therefore, they must be structured on the lowest common denominator. There is no incentive to create anything cultural with excellence. Because excelling is the province of the few who excel. We have a hard time remembering that. Some of us who are having to assign... Oh, I hate that word, assign grades. I always tell students, I don't give grades, I just record them. Oh. But there's a parallel here with the problem of grade inflation. If 90% of the school body can make the honor roll, what's the point of being an honor roll? Come on, really? Excellence has its own merit. And excellence is not to be degraded to the popular. In order to succeed with the masses, popular culture must not make any significant demands on the observer. Popular culture has to simply please him without requiring any investment on his part or any expertise. Otherwise, it's not going to be popular culture, right? The path of least resistance, the greatest likelihood of success, is to simply entertain. But when we come face to face with the Christian's understanding of worship, the worship of a supreme, omnipotent, compassionate, personal, creative God, entertainment comes up pretty badly wanting. In every syllabus in my course, Music in the Christian Church, I have included this quotation, and I'm going to share it with you too. Marva Dawn again. Worship that is too easy cheats God. But that's not what it says. Worship that is too easy cheats us. Worship that is too easy cheats us. It deprives us of the grandeur of an infinite God. Our narcissistic culture makes it difficult for many to get outside of themselves, to appreciate ideas and ideals that are larger than they are. Worship must therefore be invitation, invitation to the profound joy of the presence of God, invitation to involvement in a community of praise, invitation to disciplines that nurture personal and corporate growth in character. To the humanist, humanity is all there is. For the Christian, there is someone infinitely greater. And the juncture between our planet bound little lower than the angel's existence and his inconceivable greatness is the real intersection between the church and culture. I imagine it will not surprise most of you that I came here with my own set of convictions. And I rather expect that most of you think I'm going to make those convictions known. 
You're right. (laughs) Nobody's surprised yet? Good. I have to tell you, there are many, many people who do not agree with my convictions. Does that bother me? Not really. But I think it's only fair to include somebody else's viewpoint in your bibliography. So in your bibliography, you will find a very fine volume by Brian Wren. Now, Brian Wren's a fascinating character. He's a hymn writer. As a matter of fact, there are ten Brian Wren texts in our church hymnal. Two of them, I think, are absolutely marvelous. Two of them I unquestionably would have voted against if I'd been on the committee, but I wasn't on the committee. The rest of them lie somewhere in between. That's personal. But Brian Wren makes a very good case, as thorough as probably can be made, for including any and every musical style in worship. And I give you his book, and I welcome you to read it. In his comprehensive study of congregational song, Dr. Wren, who describes himself as a poet, who is also a pastor, theologian, and teacher, and who is fascinated by public worship in its varied forms, in his book he outlines a brief trip which he and his wife made when they visited five New England churches, each of which advertised some form of, quote, contemporary worship. They also took in on that same trip a weekday evening concert by a praise band complete with high amplification, flashing lights, and driving rhythm. By his own description, part of what made the experience so attractive to so many people included, and I'm quoting, the compelling rhythms of the music, whose lyrics, lyrics is the words, whose lyrics and melodies, that's the tunes, whose lyrics and melodies surged and ebbed like the tide, yet left few ripples on the sands of memory. What's he saying? The words didn't stick. The tunes didn't stick. What we remembered was the beat. The beat, and I'm still quoting, was what the worship services, too, had in common. Different in theology from me and Jesus to the spirit among us to love God and do justice. Different in musical dialect from folk to folk rock to renewal music and soft rock. What they shared was the insistent rhythms of popular music in our culture. In his further elaboration of what he means, he says, when people talk about music with a beat... What they probably have in mind are the strongly accentuated instrumental rhythms of most current popular music, delivered at a high enough amplification to thump through flesh, bone, and concrete. (laughs) Though contemporary worship music has many variants, almost all of it is written with a backbeat and inner pops rhythmic structures in mind. This is true of music for any tempo, as even the slowest pieces have a percussive element. As I already said, pop rock has become the norm. Obviously, Dr. Wren approves of this use of the contemporary culture by the church. Whether or not the church's adoption of popular culture is really a good thing has to be determined, at least in part, by the nature of the culture we're talking about. And in order to consider whether the church should simply appropriate the culture around it, I'm going to propose three models. One of them is apocryphal. The other two are not. I wish they were. Number one, imagine with me that in the first century church, some successful evangelist, probably Paul or one of his cohorts, presents the gospel to some gladiatorial trainees and leads them to Christ, wins a handful of them to be Christians. Since hand-to-hand combat to the death is the only thing they really know and understand as a way to make a living. Living. Interesting. 
Should they then, therefore, simply form a Christian gladiatorial league and hold evangelistic events in which, one by one, they slaughter each other, perhaps with the motto, we kill with grace? (laughs) I mean, what new convert wouldn't gladly give his life to win 20 more converts or 1,000 more converts or 10 more converts? That's the way new zeal works. Would that have been an appropriate tool for evangelism? Or did the first century church stand in judgment on that particular cultural practice? Number two. Some years ago, the newscaster and commentator Paul Harvey related, there was a young woman who billed herself as a stripper for the Lord. By her own claim, once she finished her act, she was sure there were indeed men in the audience who saw the light. I don't think I need to explain what the rest of the men saw. Is that a Christianizable act? Or is that a cultural phenomenon that just doesn't somehow fit Christian usefulness? Number three, according to a recent New York Times article, churches all across this country are using Halo 3 as a, quote, evangelistic tool. Now, some of you don't know what Halo is. I wouldn't have if I hadn't read the article. Some of you do. Halo is one of the most violent video games presently available. Halo 3 is so violent that you can't legally buy it if you're under age 17. I'm not sure what 17 has to do with having been grown up yet, but that's the age that's been hung on it anyway. And yet churches all across this country are buying site licenses, setting up anywhere up to eight television screens in their basements, and inviting any young person in the community without carding them for age to come and spend an hour with the joy of killing, then give them a snack and preach the gospel. Hello? Is something working up here? I propose the rock music is no better fitted than any of the three above for worship or evangelism in the cause of Christ, and you would probably like to know why. Here's why. I read you a passage this morning that talked about the whole brain involvement of music. Everything lights up when you're doing music. It involves all areas of the brain, complete and total. I did not know, however, until recently, actually reading uh, Levitin's book, that the uh, the, uh, ear not only sends electrical signals along the auditory nerve up to the auditory cortex, but also has projections which go directly to the cerebellum, which that's the primitive portion of the brain which contains more than half of all brain cells, by the way, and is responsible for coordinating sensory input with motor activity control. It also oversees the brain's concepts of rhythmic temporal experiences. I'm going to quote to you from Levitin. Effective music, or groove, as the term is sometimes used, Effective music involves subtle violations of timing. Now, he has earlier talked about the the experience of a rat in his hole and a tree branch blown by the wind tapping, and it would cause fear in the rat because the irregular activity would disturb his understanding of what's going on. Just as the rat has an emotional response to the violation of the rhythm of a branch hitting his house, we have an emotional response to the violation of timing in music that is groove. The rat, with no context for the timing violation, experiences it as fear. 
We know through culture and experience that music is not threatening. And our cognitive system interprets these violations as a source of pleasure and amusement. This emotional response to groove occurs via the ear cerebellum root rather than the ear auditory cortex root. Our response to groove is largely pre-conscious or unconscious because it goes through the cerebellum rather than through the frontal lobes. What is remarkable that all these different pathways integrate into our experience of a single song. Another way of saying something similar is that if you hear a gunshot sound, you jump before your brain has figured out what it was you heard. The signal goes in first. Loud sounds and rhythmic sounds go in first. Then you think about what they are. All of which is simply a more academic way of saying what the rock star Jimi Hendrix said. Music is a spiritual thing of its own. We can hypnotize people with music. And when they are at their weakest point, we can preach into their subconscious what we want them to say. Or would you rather have a sociologist, Simon Frith, tell you, a word-based approach is not helpful at getting at the meaning of rock. The words, if they are noticed at all, are absorbed after the music has made its mark. Timothy Leary, the Harvard psychologist who advocated and practiced the use of marijuana and LSD, wrote in his book, don't listen to the words, it's the music that has its own message. I've been stoned on music many times. The music is what will get you going. Or listen to Ira Altshuler in his study, A Psychiatrist Experiences with Music as a Therapeutic Agent. Music, which does not depend upon the master brain to gain entrance into the organism, can still arouse by way of the thalamus, the relay station of all emotions, sensations, and feeling, once a stimulus has been able to reach the thalamus, the master brain is automatically invaded. And here's the explanation that comes from research scientists Daniel and Bernadette Skubik. The conclusion of these studies is twofold. Number one, lyrics are of minor importance here. Whether the words are evil, innocuous, or based on Holy Scripture. The overall neurophysiological effects generated by rock music remain the same. There simply is no such thing as Christian rock that is substantively different in its impact. Second, short-term implications involve... Sorry, there are a bunch of big words here. We'll come back around, okay? Short-term implications involve a decrease in receptivity in discursive communication discursive as in discourse. While long-term implications pose serious questions for rehabilitation of degraded left hemisphere cognitive skills, in less technical jargon and in specific context, we should expect that the abilities to receive and deliver the gospel, both receive and deliver, abilities to receive and deliver the gospel, to pray discursively and to study scripture are compromised by rock music. What a winner the evil one has on his hands. Not only has he devised a musical manifestation which is addictive, devotees of rock music taken off cold turkey have exhibited all the symptoms of withdrawal, which raises the pulse rate by typically 10 beats per minute within five minutes. And if any of you are exercise buffs, you know you have to exercise a long time to get your resting pulse down 10 beats. You can shove it back in five minutes with rock music. 
which causes the overproduction of adrenaline, which the brain then converts to adrenochrome, which is chemically related to LSD and mescaline, which in its normal manifestation of loudness degrades the organs of hearing, which affects hormonal secretion, leading to lowered blood sugar levels and an impairment of judgment, which by its very nature encourages and represents lowest common denominator anti-intelligence, which its own proponents describe as, quote, anti-religious, anti-nationalistic, and anti-morality. The words of John Lennon, by the way. Not only has he come up with such a musical form, but he has done it with a medium which cannot be shut out if you are in its neighborhood. You have eyelids, you don't have ear flaps. And he has succeeded in recruiting the youth of the entire world as its advocates. Must the youth pastors now get on the same bandwagon as well? If there is any conflict between the message of the music and the message of the words, the message of the music wins, hands down, overpoweringly, every time. Period. End of discussion. That is simply the way we're wired up. The rock drummer King Coffee says the whole idea of rock and roll is to offend your parents. If we try to sing God's message of grace and love to a music whose burden is to offend your parents, where does that leave the fifth commandment? When rock music is the medium, rock music is the message. The word syncretism means the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. It happened when the freed Israelites wanted a god to take them back to Egypt, and Aaron figured he'd go along. Some of the people hadn't given up on the bull calf of Egypt yet. And this Jehovah fellow, well, he'd done some kind of impressive things. Sure enough, got him across the Red Sea. That was nice. But combining his power with the visibility of the golden idol would make a marvelously powerful religion, wouldn't it? It is often suggested that Israel in later years never really threw over their belief in the one God Moses worshipped. But if he provided rain for their crops and the Canaanite god Baal also provided rain for their crops, why not? Combine the blessings into one really super religion. Besides, the worship of Baal was a whole lot of fun. Same kind of fun rock music offers, by the way. But God has never offered to share his throne with any other deity. Certainly not the deity who leads humans to see themselves as self-sufficient. Manifesto 1. Man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams that he has within himself the power for its achievement. That is what the most pervasive music in our world believes. Jesus, however, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? A drug-induced psychedelic high? Continued exposure to rock music stimulates so much adrenaline that you end up with LSD in your brain. And it's addictive. Come unto me and I will give you what? A highly amplified cultural phenomenon which typically ranges 20 to 30 decibels above the threshold for damaging your inner ear and thereby degrades your quality of life. Come unto me and I will give you what? Free sex? Rock music is sex. The big beat matches the body's rhythms. Frank Zappa. Rock is visceral. It does disturbing things to your body. In spite of yourself, you find your body tingling, moving with the music. Tom McSloy. Come unto me, and I will give you what? The ultimate egocentrism? The main purpose of rock and roll is the celebration of self, Daryl Hall. Or unapologetic crudity? Tom Robinson, after ten years of bland, brilliant music, we were back to what rock and roll should be. Nasty, crude, rebellious people's music. Come unto me, and I will give you 
rest. Has it ever occurred to you that we serve the only God known to the human existence anywhere who offers rest? Read it for yourself in Psalm 23. He makes me what? Lie down in green pastures. The God of efficiency never lets you lie down. The God of success never lets you lie down. The God of popularity gives you no breaks. The weekend off is unknown to the God of fame or the God of wealth. None of them will ever let you, let alone make you, lie down. There's a poster that I saw once in the School of Music. What is next year's contest winner doing right now? Practicing. But David served a God who not only let him lie down, he made him lie down. Which in shepherd lingo says he made it possible for him to lie down. And the shepherd writes that that means he was free from parasites, free from hunger, free from fear of predators, free from social friction within the flock. And all of those freedoms are tokened by the presence of the shepherd. Remember the fourth commandment with me. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but on the seventh day you come and do what? Rest. Rest. Let's not muck it up with that which even the world knows, even its proponents know, is not only common, secular, and profane, but base and destructive. The greatness of his magnanimous love accommodates no comparison whatever with that other stuff. Lift your sights, accept his deliverance, and rest, and worship him in the beauty of holiness rather than in a society where what you remember is the beat. Father in heaven, we are thankful that the God we serve is so incredibly much greater than we are, than our understandings are, than our experience has been. We are grateful also that that God who inhabits eternity and who creates at his will and for his pleasure delights in us, sings over us when we follow him, sings over us because he has redeemed us, and wants to share with us an eternity of beauty, of enjoyment, of creativity, of happiness and fellowship. We pray that you will strengthen us to make better choices, that you will help us to ask better questions, and that you will help us always to accept the answer, whose name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.